death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. In other words, it's the proclamation concerning this perfect, finished, historic event of what God did for sinners in Christ for which they could never do for themselves. You remember we said that the word translated gospel is the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. We said that the good news is the message of salvation, that in Christ, God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. That is, He made a way for sin to be punished and for sinners to be saved without, actually, without ever compromising His justice. And the way that He did that was by sending His eternal divine Son, Jesus Christ, into the world as the incarnate God-man, fully God and fully man, adding humanity to His already existing deity, 100% God, 100% man. And He sent Him to do three specific things. One, to live the perfect sinless life that we failed to live, and yet God demands us to live, providing for us the perfect spotless righteousness that we don't deserve and could never earn, no matter how many good deeds we did. Christ perfectly fulfilled the law of God for 33 years of his life, both internally and externally, doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, what we've all failed to do. Secondly, he died the substitutionary death that we could never die, bearing our sin, removing our guilt, and turning away the wrath of God from us because of our sin. And then third, he rose again victorious over sin, Satan, hell, and the grave, validating that his perfect life and propitiatory death did indeed satisfy the demands of God's justice in our place, and that his resurrection guarantees our own resurrection one day. That's the good news. That's the gospel. The good news is Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18 that Christ died for us, for our sins, once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? So that he might bring us to God. Bringing us from a state of alienation and separation to a state of reconciliation. Where we actually have peace with God. Intimate fellowship with God. Where we're accepted before an infinitely holy and inflexibly just God. If you can imagine that. It's the most glorious news, the most glorious message in the entire universe. And the glorious benefits of the gospel are now freely offered to all those who repent of their sins and entrust themselves entirely and exclusively to the person and finished work of Jesus Christ as their only hope of salvation. That's the gospel, the good news in a nutshell. And we basically walk through a succinct way in which we would share the gospel looking at four key components, if you remember, starting with God the Creator and man's accountability to Him to live for the purpose for which the Creator created us. Unfortunately, however, we've all failed to live for the purpose for which the Creator created us. We've all violated God's law. And so we moved from God the Creator to man the sinner. And we talked about His guilt and His just condemnation before His Creator and His helpless, hopeless predicament and the fact that there's nothing that He can do to save Himself. Because God demands perfection or punishment and once you fail once, that's it forever. It's not like you can do enough good deeds to outweigh the bad ones. Once you fail the ones, you can never erase the blemish. And so our only hope is that God would provide a substitute who could provide that perfection for us. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. And so you move from God the Creator and man the sinner to Christ the Savior who did just that. 
He alone could bear man's punishment and his substitutionary death on the cross, and he alone could provide man's need for a perfect righteousness through his sinless life. And his resurrection vindicated his persons and his claims that he was who he said he was. He was indeed God, the God-man. And his resurrection validated the Father's acceptance of his work. Romans 4.25, he was delivered over for our sins and raised for our justification. That was God's stamp of approval, the resurrection. And so you got God the creator, man the sinner, Christ the savior, and then you get to the necessary response of repentance and faith, which alone unites us to Christ, our savior and our sovereign. Our faith doesn't save us, our faith simply unites us to Christ, who alone saves us. So first we answer the question, what is evangelism? Second, we answer the question, what is the gospel? Well, that leads us thirdly now tonight to the question, who should share the gospel? Who should share the gospel? Well, the answer is very simple. Every genuine born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has this obligation, this responsibility. In other words, this is the responsibility of every believer and not just a select few. Like pastors or church leaders or those who have the gift of evangelism or those who are more advanced in their faith or more spiritually mature or those who are just more naturally outgoing and gregarious and find it easier to talk to people and strangers. Now this is the task and the responsibility of every single believer without exception. And there are several passages in scripture that bear this out, but I just want to look tonight at a few of them. So turn with me in your Bibles to Jesus' great commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. You're all familiar with it, no doubt, but here's what we call the great commission. Christ, after his resurrection, appears to his disciples, and as you study the text, it's even more than his disciples. This is likely the account, again, from 1 Corinthians 15, 6, where there was at least 500 who saw the resurrected Christ with their own eyes, and he commissioned at least 500 here to go and to make disciples of all nations. You have other passages like Luke 24 and John 20 and Mark 16 and Acts 1, which are the other Great Commission texts. Some would argue that those are restricted to the apostles alone or the disciples alone. Well, this one can't be restricted to that. So notice in Matthew 28, verse 18, here's the resurrected Lord of glory, Christ. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth both celestial and terrestrial. The entire universe is under the authority of the risen Christ. And in light of that, notice what he says, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples. Discipleize all nations. That's a command in the Greek text, not an option. How? By baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so because Christ has all authority over this entire universe, he has the right to demand activity, this activity of making disciples, and he has the sovereign ability to enable us to fulfill this task of making disciples. And we do so first by going and preaching the gospel. The preaching the gospel is implicit. You don't baptize unbelievers. And so you go and you preach the gospel. They weren't just to stand there on that mountain. In order to discipleize all the nations, they had to go. They had to scatter. Yes, they were to wait in Jerusalem until the, the Holy Spirit came upon them. 
And then they would be empowered for worldwide witness, Acts 1.8. But once that happened, once the Spirit came, they were to go. And they were a little slow with that lesson. So what did God do? Well, He brought persecution in Acts 7 and 8 and broke up that holy huddle. They said, we're very comfortable here in Jerusalem. We don't want to have to cross a culture, learn a language, leave our comfort zone. We're just going to hang out here in Jerusalem. God said, no, you're going. And I'm going to bring persecution to scatter you. So it started with the martyrdom of Stephen, and all of a sudden, they start scattering, and they start being faithful. And if you're familiar with the book of Acts, Acts 1 to 7 is really his witness in Jerusalem. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then the uttermost part of the earth. Well, Acts 1 to 7 is the witness in Jerusalem, 8 to 12 is Judea and Samaria, and Acts 13 to 28 is the uttermost part of the earth, as the gospel goes all the way to Rome at that point in time. The point is, you need to go and you need to preach. And then second, when people are converted, you need to baptize them in the name of the triune God. And then third, you incorporate them into a local church where you teach them, not just information, but teach them to obey all that Christ commanded. How long does that take to learn all that Christ commanded, let alone to live all that Christ commanded? That's a lifetime process, right? And so evangelism is more than just sharing the gospel and getting someone to pray a prayer. Your task just begins. It doesn't end. You've got a lifetime task of helping them learn everything Christ commanded and helping them obey everything Christ commanded. That's what a disciple is. It's a lifelong lover and learner and unashamed, uncompromised follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the task is going. The task is preaching. The task is baptizing. And the task is teaching. There's three participles in the Greek text in verses 19 and 20. Going, baptizing, and teaching that are all dependent on the one main verb, the one main imperative in verse 19, that is to make disciples. And those three participles essentially tell us how it is that we can faithfully fulfill that command to make disciples. And if you were here when we went through the church series on Wednesday night, we said that this command was not limited to just the apostles. There was likely a much wider audience gathered on the mountain that day, likely the women from up in verse 7, the brethren from up in verse 10, and so this is likely the 500 or more from 1 Corinthians 15.6. But not only is it not restricted to just those apostles, just those disciples for that particular reason, but there's a second reason. Notice that Jesus also tells us here that in verse 20 that he'll be with us to empower us for this task of worldwide witness for how long? Until the apostles die off? He says until the end of the age, which certainly goes beyond the scope of just the apostles to all believers of all ages. His promise to be with you through the indwelling presence and power of his spirit to empower you for worldwide witness. And so this is a task for every single believer, not just that first century group of disciples, not just the apostles, not just pastors or elders or deacons or whoever it is. Every one of us is responsible to fulfill this task. This is a command given to us from the lips of our Lord himself. Well, there's another passage I want to look at that bears this out as well. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to begin reading in verse 4. Notice Peter writes, And 
coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you, in contrast to them, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Four exalted titles from the Old Testament given exclusively to God's covenant people, Israel, now applied to all new covenant believers who are part of the church, to all who believe, verse 7. Now why did God bestow on us such dignity? What was the purpose for making us a royal priesthood, making us a chosen people, giving us such privilege so that we could sit around and live for ourselves? Look at the purpose clause in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim, so that you may declare the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter says the express and explicit purpose for God saving you, for effectually calling you out of darkness, that is has a state of uh, you know, blindness to truth and enslavement to sin, the reason why he effectually called you out of that state when you had not received mercy and now you had become a recipient of mercy is so that you would declare his excellencies, the excellencies of the one who effectually called you. So he's talking about vertical, wit- ver- vertical worship to God and horizontal witness to others. The twofold idea contained in that Greek verb, ekangala. God saved you so that you would worship Him and witness to others, both with your life and with your lips. Now, that's borne out in the whole book of 1 Peter, if you're familiar with the book. You're to live a transformed life, and you're to proclaim the biblical gospel. So the question is, are you living for the purpose for which God saved you, redeemed you, called you out of darkness? Is that the priority of your life? Peter says it should be. That's why he saved you. Not to pursue a career. Not to pursue money. Not to pursue your own selfish dreams and desires and ambitions. But to fulfill the purpose for why he redeemed you. This is the responsibility of every believer. But you is a second person plural in the Greek text. In other words, every one of you. Every one of you who believe, verse 7, has this responsibility. So evangelism is the task of every believer, not just a select few. Let's look at one more text that bears this out. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
And let's start reading in verse 17. Notice Paul writes here, starting in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us. And I take the us here to refer not just to the apostles, but to all who are now new creatures in Christ, verse 17. So he says, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Certainly the apostles are given that ministry, but I think it extends even further to every new creature from verse 17. And here's the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And like Psalm 32 and Romans 4 talk about. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, in light of that, we are ambassadors for Christ. In other words, God saved us. He reconciled us to himself and left us here to represent him in a foreign world. Paul says we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were making his appeal through us. It's almost as if God is begging and pleading and urging sinners through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And here's the message, the truncated message of the gospel, verse 21. He, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a glorious message. Christ took all of your sin, and he gave you his righteousness. It's the greatest exchange you're ever going to hear of in your life. And so all of us who are now new creatures in Christ, verse 17, are responsible to share the gospel with those whom God has placed in our sphere of influence. Notice Paul says in verse 20, we, that is every one of us who is a new creature in Christ, are ambassadors for Christ. What's the job of an ambassador? It's to represent a king in a foreign land. Everything the ambassador does and says is to represent that king who is not physically present. He's to represent him in such a way that it's almost as if he is physically present. Saying the same things the king would be saying and doing the same things the king would be doing. And the calling of an ambassador is not a 40 hour a week job. It's not only during times of international crisis. He's always the king's representative. He stands in the place of the king. Wherever he is and whatever he's doing, his relationships are driven not by his own happiness. He decides to go places and do things not to seek his own fulfillment and his own desires, but because those things will help him faithfully represent the king. His actions, character, and words embody the king who's not present. Well, notice what Paul says here. He says that God has called us to function as ambassadors for Christ himself. Christ is at the right hand of God, so he's not here. But he left us here to represent him to other people in this world. Our lives don't belong to us for our own fulfillment. You aware of that? The primary issue is how can I best represent the king in this place with this particular person? This is not a part-time calling. This is a lifestyle. 
When an ambassador assumes his responsibilities, his life ceases to be his own. Everything he says and does is now to be about faithfully representing the king. Anything less is an affront to the king and a denial of his ambassadorial calling. Listen, if you're here tonight and you're a new creature in Christ, then God saved you and left you here to represent him and his purposes to the people he's placed in your life. Your life belongs to the king. It doesn't belong to you. God didn't save you and leave you here so that you could seek to build your own kingdom here in America or on earth. He didn't save you and leave you here so that you could represent yourself and advance your own name, your own reputation, your own cause, your own purposes, your own desires. He saved you and left you here to represent Him, to advance His kingdom, His purposes. And so as ambassadors, we must die to the desire to be many kings, which I think we all desire to be at times, and to our own kingship, seeking to build our own empire here, seeking to pursue our own dreams, our own desires, our own fulfillment, our own ambitions in order to properly represent the one true King, Jesus Christ. And so based on Matthew 28, 18-20, 1 Peter 2, 9, and 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21, it's clear that all of us are new creatures in Christ, who are new creatures in Christ, are now responsible to share the gospel with those whom God's placed in our sphere of influence. And so that raises the obvious question, are you being faithful to your ambassadorial calling. If Christ came back tonight, what kind of score would you get? Would you be viewed as a faithful ambassador? Would he keep you on as the job, or would you be fired and replaced by somebody else who was going to be more faithful? Are you truly living to represent the king everywhere you go and in everything you say and do? Are you ordering and structuring your entire life in such a way so as to most faithfully represent the king and to advance his kingdom? Are you simply just ordering and structuring your life in a way to build your own kingdom and to seek to fulfill your own desires? It's estimated that an average person has 150 to 290 acquaintances in their lives. Let me ask you, of all the acquaintances that God has placed in your life, how many of those people even know that you're a follower of Christ? How many of them actually know the gospel because you're sharing it with them? Not the fact that you go to church, that you're a religious person, but I mean that actually know the gospel so that they can be saved. You telling them you go to church doesn't save anybody. Listen, we've been left here for a mission. According to 2 Corinthians 5.20, it's to serve as Christ's ambassadors. According to Matthew 28.18.20, it's to make disciples of all nations. According to 1 Peter 2.9, it's to proclaim and declare the excellencies of the God who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen, when we get to heaven, we will no longer be able to evangelize the lost and to discipleize those who come to Christ. It'll be too late then. And so this must be our priority now while we have breath. Our life's a vapor, James tells us. We're not to spend it on our own desires, our own plans, but on God's purposes, God's priorities, and God's plans. 
Let me ask you, for you, is it the great commission or is it the great omission? Are you being faithful to Christ's command to make disciples? If not, why not? I think there's a number of reasons why we're not more faithful and more fervent in evangelism. I suspect that one of the reasons is because we just don't know why we should evangelize. And so that leads us now to our fourth question. Not only what is evangelism, what is the gospel, who should share the gospel, but fourth, why should we share the gospel? Why should we share the gospel? What does the Bible say are the motivations and the reasons why we should share the gospel? And this will be the last question we address tonight, and then we'll answer probably one more next time, and then the last three, the final time. Why should we share the gospel? Well, the Bible lists a number of different reasons. I just want to mention a few tonight. First, we evangelize because evangelism is obedience to the Great Commission. We just saw that in three specific passages. Matthew 28, 18-20, 1 Peter 2, 9, and 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21. While a failure to evangelize and disciplize others is disobedience. Second, evangelism... We, we evangelize because those who are impressed by what they have been given in the gospel desire to share it with others. If you're truly impressed with what you've been given in the gospel, you'll have a desire to share it with others. You remember the story in 2 Kings 7-9 with the beggars, they come upon that spoil and they're enjoying the spoil all to themselves and then finally one of them says, look, we don't do well to keep this bounty for ourselves. This is a day of good tidings, they said. And we're keeping silent. We must go and tell others about this great news, about this spoil that we've come upon. Well, folks, we've come upon a much greater spoil than they came upon that day. We've come upon the treasure of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 tells us it's a treasure. The same is true with the gospel. Listen, we hold the gospel not only as a treasure to look at and to admire for our own benefit, but also for as a gift to share with others for their benefit. Greg Gilbert writes, quote, An emaciated gospel leads to emaciated worship. It lowers our eyes from God to self and cheapens what God has accomplished for us in Christ. The biblical gospel, by contrast, is like fuel in the furnace of worship. The more you understand about it, believe it, rely on it, the more you adore God both for who He is and for what He has done for us in Christ, and hence the more you desire to share it with others, end quote. One of the reasons you may not have a desire to share the gospel is because you don't know it that well. You don't understand the richness of it, the, the inexhaustible depths and beauty and wonder of the gospel. You don't hold it very firmly. You don't meditate upon it. You don't even admire it yourself, so you don't have a desire to share it with others. Listen, when we view our sin rightly, it should cause us to understand just how much we've been forgiven. Jesus talked about in Luke 7, 36-50, the story of the sinful woman at Simon the Pharisee's house. He said, He who has been forgiven much loves much. If we love God for what He has done for us in the Gospel, it would follow that this love for God would flow over in our relationship with others. Sharing the love that we've received in Christ is one way that we love our neighbor as ourselves. 
If we're delighting in the love of God, we should long to see others do the same. Well, a third reason to evangelize, not only because it's obedience, not only because those who are impressed by the gospel desire to share it with others, but evangelism is a means to spreading the fame of God. If you look at 2 Corinthians 4, this is explicitly stated. Evangelism is a means to spreading the fame of God. And as a Christian, there should be no greater passion or desire than to spread God's fame, to make much of God, to see Him known and praised by all the peoples of this earth. That's the passionate longing and the desire of every true believer. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.15, For all things are for your sakes. In other words, Paul says, I endure all of this hardship that I just mentioned in the previous verses for the sake of the gospel. I do it on account of you, Corinthians. I do it out of love for you because I love people and long to see them saved and sanctified. But he goes on to speak of an even higher motivation than just love for people on a horizontal level. There's something greater driving Paul in his evangelism and his gospel ministry. He says, For all things are for your sakes. Why? So that, purpose clause, the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. And so his penultimate goal in evangelism and gospel ministry is the good of the Corinthians, while his preeminent goal is the glory of God. His whole point here is the more people that get saved, the more people you have worshiping God, praising God, thanking God for His grace. And the more people you have worshiping God and praising God and thanking God, the more glory that abounds to God. And if you're truly a Christian, then your greatest passion and your highest aim should be the glory of God. And so that should motivate you to greater fervency and greater faithfulness in evangelism. The fourth reason is because evangelism is an opportunity to praise God. Evangelism is an opportunity to praise God. J.I. Packer writes, quote, We glorify God by evangelizing, not only because evangelizing is an act of obedience, which we saw in our first point, but also because evangelism, in evangelism, we tell the world what great things God has done for the salvation of sinners. God is glorified when His mighty works of grace are made known. For a Christian to talk to the unconverted about the Lord Jesus Christ and His saving power is in itself honoring and glorifying to God. End quote. God gets glory every time you proclaim His excellencies in the gospel, 1 Peter 2.9. Listen, praise is the result of enjoyment and appreciation. When you enjoy something, when you appreciate something, it always issues forth in praise. You talk about that thing. You get excited about that thing. We praise what we enjoy. That which impresses us causes us to get excited, causes us to talk about it. And obviously we should find our ultimate enjoyment and satisfaction in God. Therefore, we should praise God. We should want to talk about God. We should want to extol God. C.S. Lewis writes, quote, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. In other words, his whole point is that your enjoyment in something isn't complete until it's finally expressed in praise. The natural course of praise is to desire others to join you in that praise. 
You go see a great movie and you tell you, you got to check out this movie. Come, you got to see this movie. You got to read this book I just read. It's an awesome book. You got to try this restaurant. They got the best food. You ever do that? I think we all do that, right? You find something you enjoy, you try to get others to join you in the enjoyment of that. The psalmists do that all the time. They not only praise God themselves, but they're constantly commissioning others to join them in that praise. The same should be true of us. If you get that excited over a movie, over a restaurant, over a book, shouldn't you be all the more excited about the God who saved you and want others to come to know Him and worship Him and praise you, praise Him along with you? Praise is the only logical response to God's magnificent character and we should long to see other people respond logically to who God is. Fifth, we evangelize because we share God's heart for the lost. We share God's heart for the lost. You see, although propelled ultimately with an aim to magnify and glorify God through obedience to the Great Commission and to extol and proclaim His excellencies, we must strive to cultivate a deep-seated compassion for the lost as well. And this compassion for the lost is so clearly manifested, one, by God's own desire that none should perish. He talks about it in Ezekiel 18.32, Ezekiel 33.11. His desire is that none should perish. God has a compassionate heart to the lost, folks. Second, it's manifested in the Father's joy at the repentance of one sinner. Read Luke 15. Entire chapters about the Father's joy and heaven's rejoicing at the repentance of one sinner. It gives the three parables of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son. And there the Father is, a picture of God the Father running in the most undignified manner in that Jewish culture to go embrace his son because of the compassion he had on that lost son. You see the compassion... Jesus' compassion for the lost in Matthew chapter 9 is those who are disquieted and dispirited, the text says. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And he had compassion for them. You see it in Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler in Mark 10.21. He said that he loved him by giving him the gospel. And when the rich young ruler turned and walked away, Jesus didn't chase after him and lower the demands and the standards of the gospel to try to get him to make a decision. But he did love him, the text says, by telling him what he needed to hear rather than what he wanted to hear. He didn't want his idol of covetousness exposed. And so he walked away. But the text says Jesus looked at him and loved him, Mark 10.21, as he's giving him the gospel. Jesus showed his compassion for the lost by weeping over Jerusalem, Luke 19.41 by pleading with the people in Matthew 23, 37. You see, his compassion exemplified in Paul by his desire to be accursed for the sake of his kinsmen in Romans 9, 1-3. Paul says, if it was possible for me to go to hell and to be damned so that they wouldn't have to be, I would. That's how bad my heart breaks for my kinsmen, my Jewish kinsmen according to the flesh who are lost. And it issues forth not just in those sentiments, but in the sacrifice of fervent prayer for them. Romans 10.1, you seeing them pray, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. 
You don't just see it in the sentimental feeling. I, I would be accursed. You see an issue forth not only in prayer, but also in proclamation. He's constantly proclaiming the gospel. He's constantly evangelizing. That's what you see him doing all throughout the book of Acts. That's what you see him do with his pen every time he's writing a letter. He had a compassionate heart for people. Yes, his ultimate aim was the glory of God, but he wasn't indifferent to the plight of perishing people. And neither should we be. We should have the heart of the Father. We should have the heart of Jesus Christ, the Son. We should have the heart of Paul, the Apostle. Well, sixth, and a sixth motivation to evangelize is striving to win souls in light of standing before Christ in the last day. Striving to win souls in light of standing before Christ in the last day. Turn me to 2 Corinthians 5 so you can see this. 2 Corinthians 5. Notice starting in verse 6, Paul writing to the Corinthians says, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent for the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 8, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Is that your ambition? To be pleasing to the Lord? Why, Paul? Why do you want to be pleasing to the Lord? Notice the explanatory statement in verse 10. For or because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And notice the inference that he draws in light of that reality. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord as manifested in the judgment, we what? Persuade men. And so because Paul desires to leave this life and be with the Lord, verse 8, he has one ambition, and that is to please Christ in all things now, verse 9. And the reason why he tries to please Christ now is because he must appear before the judgment seat of Christ then, verse 10. Now let me just say that what's being determined at the judgment seat, the famous seat of Christ, is not a believer's destiny. We're saved by grace through faith, and all of our sins have already been paid for on the cross. We don't earn our way into heaven. What's determined is our reward. You see, although every believer will enjoy Jesus Christ completely forever, we will do so with a capacity that is in accordance with the way we lived our lives as Christians. Even in Christ, the life that we live in Christ matters for eternity. You can read Luke 19. It talks about the parable of the ten minas and those who were faithful were given greater responsibility. Jonathan Edwards writes, quote, It will be no damp to the happiness of those who have, who have lower degrees of happiness and glory that there are others advanced in glory above them. For all shall be perfectly happy, every one shall be perfectly satisfied, every vessel that is cast into this ocean of happiness is full, though there are some vessels far larger than others, end quote. Everybody's going to be filled to the brim with happiness in heaven. There's not going to be any discontented people. There's not going to be any envious or jealous people. The point is, you're going to have a greater measure of enjoyment of God, though, based on your faithfulness now. 
You're going to have a greater measure of responsibility, Luke 19, based on your faithfulness now. In light of standing before Christ, Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, standing before the judge, we persuade men. Not because he fears being cast into hell, he knows he's secure. But it's just the fear of bringing reproach on so great a Savior that you would go and squander your life living for yourself rather than for Christ. Paul is fervent in evangelism knowing that one day he will give an account to Christ for how he spent his time. And how he spent his time now will affect his enjoyment and his rewards for all eternity. How about you? Are you motivated to faithfulness and evangelism knowing that one day you'll stand before Christ and give an account for how you lived your life here on this earth? Seventh, we evangelize because of the eternal destiny of the unbeliever. We evangelize because of the eternal destiny of the unbeliever. Listen, the sober reality of eternal, conscious, unending torment in hell without one moment's rest or relief for all those not covered with the righteousness of Christ must inform our view of the lost and must cultivate within us urgency and fervency to evangelize the lost. Thomas Watson writes, quote, O eternity, if all the body of the earth and sea were turned to sand, and all the air up to the starry heaven were nothing but sand, and a little bird should come every thousand years and fetch away in her bill but the tenth part of a grain of all that heap of sand, what numberless years would be spent before that vast heap of sand would be fetched away, end quote. Giving you a picture of eternity. And that still fails to, to, to indicate it. Every thousand years would take forever, but it might end sometime. Eternity is never going to end. Hell is never going to end. And so Watson writes, quote, Thus it is, in hell they would die, but they cannot. The wicked shall be always dying, but never dead. The smoke of the furnace ascends forever and ever Oh, who can endure thus to be ever upon the rack? This word ever breaks the heart, end quote. George Whitfield used to speak with tears in his eyes of the torment of burning like a livid coal. Not for an instant or for a day, but for millions and millions of ages. At the end of which souls will realize that they're no closer to the end than when they first begun. And they will never, ever be delivered from that place. Folks, the way we talk about hell shows us that we have no understanding of hell at all. That was a hell of a game. That's a hell of a song. We have no idea what we're talking about. Folks, hell is absolutely horrible. The Bible describes hell in Matthew 8:12 as outer darkness. In Matthew 13, 42 and 50, as a furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Mark 9, 43 and 44, it's described as an unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. According to Revelation 14, 10 and 11, those who end up there will drink the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. 
The fact is that all those who have heard the gospel and have rejected the gospel, have not embraced Christ alone as their Savior, truly repenting and turning from their sin and trusting Christ, are headed to that hell. And not only that, but all those who have never heard the gospel and thus have never repented of their sin and trusted Christ alone to save them are headed to that same hell as well. You see, the state of the unreached in the world is that they haven't heard God. They haven't heard the gospel. And yet at the very same time, Romans 1, 18-23 says they have heard him and they have seen him. So turn with me to Romans chapter 1 just so you understand the guilt of all mankind. The fact that the excuse that you were an atheist or an agnostic is not going to hold up on the last day. God's not going to make you an exception. Because you claim ignorance, you claim to not have known him. Notice Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God, watch this, is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. How? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are no longer invisible. He's put them on display. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Creation screams of the attributes of God. Verse 21, For even though they what were ignorant of God? For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So every single person, Paul says, is guilty before God unless they repent and trust in Christ alone. And if they don't trust in Christ alone, they're headed to hell forever. Whether they've ever heard the gospel or not. You say, well, what about the innocent person in the jungles of the Amazon who's never heard the gospel? Well, the innocent person in the jungles of the Amazon who's never heard the gospel goes to heaven. The only problem is he doesn't exist. Because there are no innocent people. Everyone is guilty before God whether they've heard the gospel or not. And so people need the gospel, folks. Listen, there are over 2 billion people in this world at this moment whose knowledge of God is only sufficient to damn them to hell forever. General revelation that Paul just talked about in Romans 1 is enough to condemn you. It's not enough to convert you. People need special revelation. They need the Bible. They need the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but the name Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 
He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son does not have eternal life, but the wrath of God abides on him. There's salvation in no one else but Jesus Christ. People need to know the gospel. They don't have vague information about some deity and it's all the same God and because of that they're saved. I don't know of any greater motivation to go share the gospel than that. Hell is horrible and that should motivate us to evangelize the lost. Eighth, we evangelize because evangelism is something that we won't be able to do in heaven. Evangelism is something we won't be able to do in heaven. John MacArthur writes, quote, Virtually every other spiritual exercise we do together as members of Christ's body, we will still be able to do in heaven, praising God, enjoying fellowship together. But now is the only time we have for proclaiming the gospel to the lost and winning people to Christ. We seriously need to be redeeming the time. So evangelism is one of the tasks that is specifically unique to this current age. Therefore, it must be an essential part of our lives, knowing that we only have so much time to do it. And knowing that this is the very reason why God left us here when He saved us, rather than taking us immediately to heaven. He wanted us to serve as His ambassadors, as ministers of reconciliation. So there we've seen eight reasons. We could probably name a whole host of others. But hopefully those provide enough fuel on your fire to ignite a passion. Not just a passion that kind of flickers for a couple weeks or a couple months and then dies out, but a sustained fuel for a lifetime of fervency and faithfulness to the Great Commission of evangelizing the lost. Now in spite of those motivations, we're still slow to heart to go evangelize. I don't suspect that because I've given you motivations from the Word of God, everyone's going to rush out of here and you're going to be sustained in your passion for evangelism. You say, well, why is that? I mean, we just heard from the Word of God, hopefully the Spirit of God used that to convict us and to compel us to go evangelize. Why is it that we're not more faithful and we're not more fervent knowing that our evangelism is a means to glorifying God, which should be our greatest passion? Knowing that evangelism is a means by which people are rescued from the horrific torment of hell, some of which are our very own family members who we'd like to lay our life down, like Paul wanted to do in Romans 9. So why aren't we bolder? Why aren't we more faithful? Well, that's what I want to look at next time. Some of the reasons why, some of the hindrance to faithfulness and evangelism. Why is it that we're not more faithful? And how can we deal with that unfaithfulness biblically? Let's pray. Father, thank you for just our time. Thank you for what we've seen in the Word and just our understanding of evangelism, how it's clearly and accurately communicating the gospel irrespective of the results and just our understanding of the gospel as the good news of what you've done for us in Christ and understanding that every one of us has a responsibility for which we're accountable to go and share the good news that we've thankfully heard others share with us or read about in your word and embraced by faith alone and Lord you've given us ample more than ample motivation to go and do that and I pray that you would use this to compel us to greater faithfulness in this task 
for the good of others around us, and ultimately for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Are there any questions based on what we talked about tonight or just based on evangelism in general that you want to ask? Quentin. I would just basically help them understand that, you know, salvation biblically is not just making a decision for Christ, but it's being a lifelong disciple of Christ. And then I would help them understand what a disciple of Christ looks like biblically. And then I would just kind of ask them, you know, questions. I mean, obviously, if you know them personally and they're claiming to be Christians, but everything in their life contradicts that profession can be, you know, gracious but specific and just say, you know, help me understand, you know, I, and here's what I'm going to get into a little bit in the fourth session, but I'll give you a little preview. I always talk about the three M's is kind of your motive for wanting to deal with them. It's not to try to triumph and debate or to, to show that you're right and they're wrong. You, you should have a genuine care for their soul and not to argue with them or debate with them, and but to see them saved and to see God glorified. Yeah. Your manner of speaking should be Christ-like. We'll look at some passages on that. And then the third one is your message should be the Bible. So I want to know specifically, if I know things in their life, what is it in their life that seems to contradict the Word of God? And then I want to take them to those places in the Word of God and just say, you know, it's interesting because I think a lot of people in our own day have this understanding that as long as you've prayed a prayer or as long as you attend church, you're a Christian. As long as you profess to be a Christian, you're a Christian. But the Bible's clear. It gives irrefutable fruits and proofs and evidences of what true biblical conversion looks like. And in light of your profession, I just want to look at several passages and say, you know, honestly, before God, do you see this as the characteristic pattern of your life? And so that I would kind of bring those things to bear on them. Obviously, we're going through 1 John on... Wednesday night. That whole book is written, 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. He's writing to give readers assurance of salvation. So if you want an epistle that has the express and explicit purpose of dealing with that issue, that's one of the best ones. And it gives, obviously, those three tests. The doctrinal test of right belief. And a lot of people in our day might pass that test. But what they don't understand is that belief you know, in John's writing, is not just assent. You know, we typically think, well, yeah, I believe because I have the knowledge and I assent and I agree to those facts about Jesus. I believe he was God and man. I believe he came to the earth. I believe he died on the cross for sin. But the belief is not just 
knowledge. It's not just a assent and agreement. It's an entrustment of your soul to his person and his work and his lordship. So it's faith in and commitment to him as, his, as, as lord. Is that the reality of their, of their life? Is he the lord of their life? And is that demonstrated in their life? Are they just saying, Lord, Lord? and going to be shocked on Judgment Day, like Matthew 7, 21 to 23. And then you've got the relational test of love. Is there love, life marked by sacrifice and service for the highest good of others, even at great cost to themselves, where they make it a priority to gather with God's people, to be involved in the lives of other Christians, so that they can know other Christians and bear their burdens and pray for them and serve them and encourage them with the truth of God's word where they're living as a disciple-making disciple. Their whole life is about becoming a disciple and learning more truth so that they can live more truth and they can take that truth and impart it to other people so that they could learn and live more truth and pass it on. Is that the mark of their life? Or do they live a selfish life? And then, you know that you have the moral test of obedience. Is their life marked by holiness and righteousness, set apart from sin, not perfection, but is that the desire of their heart and the direction of their life? And not just externally, but internally, where no one else but God can see. And those are just a few from John, and if you want, I mean, I preached that whole series on the gospel, and I've got probably seven weeks on the evidences and of true conversion. I would just walk them through some of those things and just take them to the Word of God and just pray that the Spirit of God would bring conviction and help them see their lost condition. That though they profess one thing, their practice completely contradicts their profession. Because we're not saying that you're saved by your works. You know, you are justified, you are declared righteous based solely on the merits of Christ. But if you have been justified, the Bible's clear that you're now indwelt and empowered by the Spirit of God and He produces sanctification and holiness in your life. If there's no sanctification taking place, if there's no progressive growth and holiness, you were never justified. You were never declared righteous before God. Because if you were you'd be sanctified as well. You'd be progressively being sanctified because the Spirit of God would be in you changing and transforming your life. So your works are not the ground of your justification, but they are the necessary evidence and proof of having been justified. And if it's not there, then you've not been declared righteous. So does that make sense? You, you can't convince anybody. The Spirit of God has to do that. He, he's the one who, one, convinces people of the veracity and truthfulness of God's Word. I think this is where people sometimes go wrong in evangelism. They spend most of their time trying to, you know, what we call classical apologetics or evidential apologetics, where they're trying to give evidences and proofs for the existence of God or for the, you know, for the veracity and truthfulness of the Bible. It doesn't matter how many proofs I come up with, Unless the Spirit of God, this, is, this book is self-authenticating and self-attesting. And I know that all God's elect are ultimately going to believe this. The Spirit of God convinces them of the veracity and truthfulness of this word. I don't want to convince them. Somebody might come who has a better argument after I left and that out-convince them. The Spirit of God needs to convince them of the veracity of this book, of the truth of this book. And then he needs to convict them personally of the implications that they're accountable to, to, before God and based on His Word. And He has to compel them. He has to give them life. He has to regenerate them. 
All I can do is share the truth. I can pray for them. I can plead with them. I can try to be as clear and cogent and compelling as possible. But at the end of the day, if the Spirit of God doesn't regenerate them, they'll never believe. They're natural men. They don't have the ability to understand the things of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 2.14. So that's important that we understand our domain of responsibility and not try to get into God's. But you do want to take them to the Word and plead with them and then pray that God would help them to see their lost condition and regenerate them and cause them to repent and believe. Make sense? Okay. Any other questions? Daniel? You're getting into Greek grammar now, and basically it's a participle in the Greek. It's an aorist participle. I'm going to try not to lose everybody right now. But it's an aorist participle in the Greek, and then it's an imperative. Uh, Make disciples is an imperative. So technically, you would typically translate a participle as as you're going or while you're going, make disciples. Kind of like as you're going about your daily business, make disciples. The only thing being is when you have an imperative like that, tied tightly to that, that participle takes a, typically takes on the imperatival force of that imperative. So that's why many translators translated it, go, as an imperative, and not just as a participle while you're going or as you're going. So both of them are true, but it's not just, hey, as you're going about your business, try to make some disciples. The point is intentionality, because it's disciples of all nations. So it's not just, hey, while you're going about your business here in Jerusalem, as you have opportunity, look to make disciples. His point is you need to be intentional and you need to go beyond the borders of Jerusalem because you need to go make disciples of all nations. That requires intentionality. If all of us just said, hey, as we're going, then the the nations would never be reached, right? So there has to be an intentionality. So I I, kind of like the the translation where it's translated as an imperative. It's true as you're going, but the point is there, there's an intentionality there. It is, I think it, it takes on. It's what we call a participle with an imperative sense. It's the same thing in First Peter 2.1. You know, therefore, laying aside malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you might grow in respect to salvation. The laying aside there is a participle. It's an aorist participle. Desire or crave or long for the pure milk of the word is an aorist imperative. Well, some translators translate it not just therefore laying aside, but therefore lay aside. And I think that's a good translation. It, it takes on the imperatival force of that other imperative in the context. 
In other words, uh, a prerequisite to longing for the Word is first laying aside sin. And so if you don't long for the Word, if you don't crave the Word, one of the reasons might be because sin has spoiled your appetite for the Word. Just like Twinkies spoil your appetite for dinner. So you need to lay aside sin so that you'll crave the Word. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying you, you, you ignore... Gen- I mean, it's going to require probably some discernment there. I'm not saying you ignore legitimate questions that they might be struggling with. It's just oftentimes the smokescreen to deal with their guilt and culpability. And so oftentimes people just don't want to deal with the fact that they're guilty, so they're always trying to sidetrack you on other things before they, before they ever get you to show them that they're guilty before God and they're condemned before God and they need to repent and trust in Christ. It's somebody that I have a relationship and, and I think they're genuinely struggling with that particular issue, then I could try to help them understand biblically how hell is literal, how hell is real, and how you've misunderstood that word lexically. Um, and then there's Church of Christ and the baptism issue. I just show them biblically that baptism doesn't save you. It's not the ground of your justification anywhere in the Bible. You've misunderstood every one of those passages on baptism, and I'll walk you through them. Most of those people are typically deeply entrenched. I've dealt with a guy from the Church of Christ. He used to be a member at my gym in West Palm. We used to interact all the time. I went through every single passage on baptism that he showed me, and I showed him how it doesn't mean what he thinks it means, and here's what it means, and he's still an entrenched person in the Church of Christ. So it doesn't mean that I'm not going to take him through that. I think he genuinely struggles with that. But, but at the end of the day, I'm constantly bringing the gospel to bear in ways that the Spirit's going to work and help him understand his guilt before God and that he's trusting in his works and he's going to be incinerated along with those works on the last day. Because if righteousness could be attained through works of the law, then Christ died for nothing, Galatians 2.21. He's trusting in his baptism as one of the grounds of his acceptance before God. And that's the greatest offense to God in the world. Why in the world did Christ have to suffer and die if you could have earned your way with something you did? Or to say that Christ's work was deficient and you needed to add something like baptism to it to complete it. Christ said it's finished. And God proved that by raising him from the dead. You don't need to add anything to it. You just need to repent and believe, which unites you to the Savior who accomplished everything God demanded. So it's just going to take discernment. But I would just constantly try to weave in the gospel and help them understand their guilt. And look, God demands perfection and you're not perfect. You need a substitute. You need to repent and believe in Christ. They don't believe that uh, baptism is necessary for salvation? Well, I, I would say you can't have both because either the thief on the cross is a believer or he's not. Christ said he would be with him in paradise and he wasn't baptized. 
huh? argument for that is Christ was still alive at the time. And so he got down off the cross and was baptized, and then he. No, he said he, 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 he gave me a he gave me he gave me a, a, a decent argument for that. It was too convoluted for me to even remember. <laughs> I, I, I don't doubt that. <laughs> but, but his point was Christ was still alive at the time, and that 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 wasn't the baptism wasn't in effect. Their 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 linchpin verse is, is Acts two thirty eight. You're familiar with. Yeah. And he said that 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 wasn't in effect then. He said he said something else was in effect prior to that, and then at at when Peter preached that sermon, then this stuff came into effect. The baptism. So that that's. Doesn't affect his argument. Okay, so he's he's arguing that that was the point at John's uh, baptism for repentance. Christ hadn't instituted Christian baptism at that point. Yeah. yeah. Well, the point is they still misunderstand all the other passages anyway. So I would just take them to the other passages and say, show me where baptism uh, saves you or is essential for salvation. Well, well, the point, it's not so much an easier time. God, God alone is sovereign, so I don't view it as... Because I could get frustrated. I've never seen a Jehovah's Witness come to Christ, and they used to come to my house all the time when I lived in West Palm Beach. All the time on Saturday, they'd be there. I'd share the gospel. I never saw one of them come to Christ. So it's not that I have a hard time. I, I view it as a great opportunity. They're, they're, they just heard the glories of the gospel proclaimed. I can't save them anyway, but I was faithful to do what God called me to do. I'm burdened for them. I want to see them come to Christ, but I don't walk away discouraged because God may have higher purposes. He, he, he's in control. I'm not, and I'm going to let him be you know, the sovereign and, and to do what he wills with people. I just want to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel. It's not that I'm indifferent to their salvation, but... I can't save people, only Christ can. So that's why I just want to be faithful to the gospel and give him all the ammunition he needs to save them. He's not going to save them with some watered-down substitute. How do I know that they're actually coming to Christ and not the substitute I offered them that kind of tantalize them and tempt them? Robert? Yeah, I was I was struggling with this problem. Like, you meet people, right, that claim to be Christians. You wouldn't judge the cars or nothing about then, but and then I sometimes the desire is not even there uh, to share the gospel. They don't even think about it. They don't even go there. Uh -huh. I always wonder. I mean, it's, it's because uh, they don't really have uh, Jesus in their life, or because they don't have no desires at all to share the gospel, but to serve another ministry. I don't know, but I, I always wonder. If everybody has to have, you know, I believe that everybody has to have the desire at least the desire to share the gospel. Maybe not with, uh, you know, all the knowledge possible that you can have, but at least the opportunity to, to do it, you know, so. Yeah, I don't know how you could be a Christian and have no desire at all to share the gospel. I mean, Mark 8, Jesus said, you know, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. You're giving up your life to live for the Gospel. Not just to live it out in your own life, but to proclaim it to other people. That, that's now going to be your passion. 
He says, for what will a man, you know, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If you're ashamed of Christ and you don't ever speak of Christ, you don't ever share the gospel with other people, you don't ever testify that you're a Christian, he's, he's saying, you know, the Father's going to be ashamed of you and cast you out on the last day because you weren't truly a Christian. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty much a contradiction in terms that you would be saved by the gospel and then you would be indifferent to the plight of perishing men. You'd have no desire to see them experience the same great forgiveness and to worship the same great God who saved you, knowing that God gets glory from that and you're indifferent. So you're not just indifferent to the plight of people, you're indifferent to the glory of God now. And the two great commandments are to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. So you're violating the two great commandments of the law, which he says the whole Old Testament is summed up in those two commandments. You'd be hard-pressed to think that someone was a Christian Emmanuel. can't necessarily what was the last part no but we have a responsibility to hold people accountable to their profession of the word and so the bible says if you see somebody caught in a trespass you who are spiritual are to restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness so if somebody lives a life of habitual indifference to the plight of perishing people and a life of habitual indifference to the glory of god and has no desire to be obedient to god's clear command to go and make disciples and to share the gospel, then we want to get involved in that person's life and try to understand you know, where they're at and how they're thinking through that. If they just say, yeah, I just don't have any desire to be obedient to that and you know, I don't want you to keep pressing me on that. I'm just not going to do that. I don't want to do that. Well, then I'm very concerned. If they say, you know, I do have a desire to do that, but I struggle with the fear of man, or I feel so inadequate, I don't feel like I know the gospel very well, or, yeah, sometimes I do struggle just with being so self-absorbed, or just being, you know, um, you know, not compassionate to people around me, but I want to be, or, you know what, sometimes I just have such a guilty conscience because of my own sin, I just don't even feel, I feel like such a hypocrite even sharing the gospel, or, you know, whatever it is, and they're saying, I have a desire, but I'm just struggling, can you help me? Well, I'm encouraged by that, you know, that desire should be there, and there should be a desire to deal with whatever sin it is that's preventing them from being obedient to Christ. 
to not have any desire, nor to have any desire to be obedient to Christ and to grow in those particular areas, I'm, I'm very concerned at that point and I'm going to warn someone based on what the Bible says. I don't, I don't, I'm not making judgments on whether people are saved or not saved. If you're in the church and you're calling yourself a Christian, I'm going to hold you to what the Word says and I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt just like Paul did. But you're not going to have any assurance of your salvation and if you persist in sin in a high-handed and unrepentant way, eventually the Bible talks about a process of discipline. Because you're you're destroying the unity and purity of God's church. You're you're besmirching the name of Christ, calling yourself a Christian and living in a way that's totally contrary to the way that Christ called you to live. Make sense? Yeah. Uh, Annie. try to talk about that a bit next week that's kind of be the, the next topic is is basically um, dealing with that whole issue how, how do we deal with you know a, a fear of man or how do we deal with just thinking through that I mean oftentimes it's just I want to deal with whatever hard idolatries are there because typically there's some idol in my heart that's keeping me from being obedient to Christ and I want to try to identify what that is you know what what is it that I'm trying to protect I understand that I may not naturally be an intro, an, an extrovert or whatever it is, but I still have a responsibility to, to share the gospel. And I should have a desire to share the gospel because I want to see Christ exalted. I want to see sinners saved. So what is it in my heart at the root level that causes me to be resistant of that? Is it a fear of man? Is it... Um, you know, a love, a, a, a love, an inordinate love for myself and a concern for my reputation or how people perceive me or what they think of me or how they treat me. You know what I'm saying? Because oftentimes it's revealing a love for self and a lack of love for others and a lack of concern for the glory of God. I really don't care about that person's plight. I care more about making sure my life is filled with comfort that it doesn't have any tension involved, that it doesn't have any awkwardness involved. You know, those are all idols that I want to mortify and deal with, you know, because most of the time we're just trying to preserve our comfort, living a tension-free, comfort-filled life. And I know, hey, if I share the gospel with this, but they might think I'm a Jesus freak, you know? They, they might get angry with me. This, They might get argumentative. It might cause awkwardness in my relationship. They might start talking about me to other people and gossip. You know, that's all rooted in self-love. I'm so concerned with myself and how this could affect me that I don't really care enough about their lost condition and their eternal soul and God's glory being you know, spurned by their unbelief and their disobedience, that those are not compelling enough motives to me. I still love myself too much. And so I need to deal with that self-love. I, I need to root that out and get so consumed with the greatness and the grandeur and the glory of God, meditating on Him and His attributes and 
you know, thinking about some of these things, about the plight of lost sinners, about the horrors of hell, cultivating a compassionate heart, a genuine concern for these people, and learning to deny myself in practical daily ways because you're not going to compartmentalize your sin. If you're a selfish person or if there's self-love there, it's going to manifest it in a thousand different areas. And if you try to put a band-aid on one here, it's still going to squeak out over here. So I'm trying to find what are all the ways that I serve myself and how can I start practically denying myself? You know, it's, it starts with belief and then it leads to behavior, but I need to preach the gospel to myself. I need to preach Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in lowliness of mind. I typically think way too highly of myself. You know, I need to cultivate what we call a carpet-mindedness. Instead of seeing myself as up on the ceiling in terms of my importance, I need to see myself down where I really am. And I need to start esteeming others more highly than myself. And I need to look out not merely for my own interests, but also the interests of others and have the mindset of Christ in me, who although he existed in the very essence and nature and form of God, didn't cling to those things. You know, he looked at our plight, our need, and his comfort, and he left his comfort and the glories of heaven to come to the horror of a cross. You know, because he's characterized by giving, not grasping. And, and I want to cultivate that same mindset. Lord, cultivate that within me. So I just need to study passages that deal with that kind of stuff and think through the implications and pray and think about all the ways in which I would need to renew my mind and put off sinful thinking and how I could cultivate and renew my mind with selfless thinking and start to practically apply those things in my life and then see it lived out not just in evangelism but every other area of my life in my marriage and my relationships with other people does that make sense and that's just one one area I, I, it would probably be different for all of us what is it that precludes us from being more faithful hopefully i can hit on some of that stuff next time emmanuel you may hit on it next week too but um, just um, i don't know if everyone Yeah, yeah, I'm going to talk about that next time. That'll be one of the ones, is, is sin. I mean, sin's always going to minimize your desire for others, because what is sin? It's selfishness. I'm seeking my, myself, my own desires, and I'm willing even to violate the will of God and the word of God to get those things. So I could care less about other people. I could care less about God. I just want what I want. I mean, that's what sin is. So, of course, it's going to make you indifferent to the plight of other people and to the gospel. Secondly, when you're sinning, if you're a Christian, you have a guilty conscience. Unless you're silencing it and searing it, which is a terribly dangerous place to be. And so what does guilt do? It acts like glue, right? It, it shuts your lips because it, it, in your ear is saying, you hypocrite, why are you sharing the gospel with this person? You don't believe that. You don't live that. You're a hypocrite. So it's going to silence your lips when you're living in sin. I know for me too, you know, because you, you, as a Christian, you have to learn that, you know, in the workplace, it's not necessarily a place where you can just go and maybe like John the Baptist would become a radical. And you, you kind of, as you grow, you start to learn these things in your Christian walk that, you know, there's a certain time for this and a time for that. 
I don't know if that if that's part of letting others live down because you gotta function in this world. It's not you know, I found found Jesus, it was like forget everything else. Yeah. So that you re- you realize that no, you're still in this world too and you have to learn how to function too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, you don't set aside explicit commandments to try to be faithful to the commandment to evangelize. You're not being faithful then. You don't have to set aside certain commandments to be faithful to the others. And we're going to talk about that in the fourth session, you know, evangelism in the workplace and stuff like that. When you're evangelizing, when you should be working and you're stealing from your employer, God's not honored with that. You know, you, you think you're doing this great noble task by evangelizing, but you, you, you're there for a purpose and you're not being submissive to your employer. So you're violating Ephesians 6 and you're violating 1 Peter 2 and these other passages. So, but we're going to talk about all that stuff. I mean, yeah, what, what did Peter say? You know, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you or to, to men, you know, you be the judge, but we can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. I mean, they, they were just so overwhelmed by the good news and the gospel. They couldn't stop speaking about it. No matter how many times you beat them, you couldn't silence them. You, you know, it's just, they had spent time with Christ. Christ was real to them. Another one of those things is unbelief that I'm going to talk about. So we'll, we'll deal with all that next time. So. Anything else, real quickly? I don't want to keep you guys all night, but uh, Robert. Just to say, uh, we have uh, finger foods and drinks on the other side, so. Okay. We'll finish you just go with it. Okay. <laughs> Anything else, or are you guys ready to go eat? <laughs> all right. Let, let me go ahead and pray for us, real quick. Father, again, thank you for this time. Thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, forgive us for all the ways in which we failed to be more faithful here. Every one of us knows that. We've not honored this command to go and make disciples to the degree that we should. And we're thankful for the blood of Christ that does cover our sin and cleanse our sin. And we're thankful for the empowerment of the Spirit, which does cultivate within us a desire and provides for us a power for bold witness. It's not native to us or natural to us. We recognize that. That's why we see... Peter cowering before a slave girl. That's why we see Peter compromising with the circumcision party in Galatians 2. That's why we see Paul praying for boldness. And uh, every one of us can relate to those struggles of fear and timidity like Timothy in 2 Timothy 1. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us, that you continue to take your truth and deepen our convictions in it and cultivate within us a greater boldness and a greater passion for faithfulness and evangelism and that you would use us powerfully for the good of others and for your glory while we have breath we ask it now in christ's name amen